You're listening to Too Much Information on WFMU. My name's Benjamin Walker. Today we have a very cinematic program. I'm speaking with two film directors tonight, Alex Lambert and Joshua Oppenheimer. Both have new projects out this summer. A welcome respite from all these superhero movies. Or perhaps you go for that sort of thing. I'm, I'm not being demeaning, I'm, I'm, or at least I'm not trying to be. Uh, nor am I uh, a, a hater. In fact, I just keep forgetting what these movies are about, even before I get out of the movie theater. So that's why a few reboots ago, I just decided to stop going. I said, Fini! To the flying man in the pajamas. But anyways, there are many, many good things going out there in cinema land right now, especially here in New York. BAM has a Cassavetes retrospective going on right now, and Film Forum has a number of great documentaries showing. And opening on the 19th of July here in New York is a film called The Act of Killing. Every now and then a film comes along that makes you rethink everything you thought you knew about documentary films. Storytelling, truth, fiction, reality. The Act of Killing is definitely one of these films. Like I said, it's opening here in just a few weeks and on the 19th, July 19th. And the director, Joshua Oppenheimer, joins us now on the phone. Welcome to WFMU, Joshua. Thank you so much. So this is a very hard film to describe to people because there's just so much going on, so many things that have never been put on film before, both in regards to the content and form. And I'm dying to know how you introduce this film to people who know absolutely nothing about it. Well, I would say that basically in The Act of Killing, we meet paramilitary death squad leaders who helped the Indonesian army in 1965 kill somewhere between half a million and two and a half million people because they were rewarded with power for their role in the killings and because they've never been removed from power. Instead of apologizing for it or denying it, as perpetrators often do in documentary, they appear to be proud of it and they boast about it. And to understand the nature of this apparent pride, to understand why they're boasting, for whom they're boasting, how they want to be seen, and how ultimately they see themselves, I give them the chance to dramatize what they've done and how they feel about it in whatever ways they wish. Yeah. So you get a number of these killers, mass murderers, as you just uh, uh, described them, to talk to you about their crimes, brag about them, and reenact them. But let's talk about one of the major set pieces uh, a reenactment of a battle, a rape and pillage of Kampung Kulam, I believe it's called. Kampung Kulam, yeah. Kampung Kulam by a paramilitary group called the Panskala Youth. I think this filming took place actually early in the process for you. So tell us, how did this one happen? Well, actually, it, was, it wasn't too early in the process. It's about, it's just as it is in the film, it's about two-thirds of the way mm. through the process. Um, I, the, the perpetrators I was filming in North Sumatra, Indonesia, had been recruited from the ranks of a par- right-wing paramilitary group called Panchasila Youth, and sort of, th- ever since massacring the residents of Kampung Kolam, 
a village outside of the city of Medan, where I made the film, they have celebrated this massacre as a kind of heroic chapter in their paramilitary organization's history. It would be as though you walked into Germany 40 years on after the end of the, the after the end of World War II and found that the Nazis were still in power, and that I don't know the liquidation of the Warsaw Ghetto was something still being celebrated by by aging mm-hmm. by aging members of the SS and we to understand basically to understand how these men to understand how these the nature of this impunity to understand how you build a, a normality on the basis of terror and lies i understood that and to understand how this whole organization functions and sees itself i basically worked with senior members in this, of this organization, including a minister in the Indonesian government, to recreate this pogrom, to recreate this attack on Kampung Kola. Yeah. So this minister shows up at, to participate, and he addresses you personally. You know, at, at one point he stops and he says, oh, hey, Joshua, and he, and he explains to you that while he feels what you're filming is accurate, he does say that it's dangerous, and, but he seems to be 100% okay as long as it's presented as, a, as his words, simulation of the militia's rage. But yeah, I think he, I think he goes through, he, he gets a little, he, he gets stuck between a rock and a hard place in the scene. I mean, he's a politician. He is conscious of his public image. He um, realizes at some point as he's watching, he incites a mob to burn down and attack a village. Of course, it's a set and all of the so-called victims are... Are the rep per, are the family members of the perpetra- perpetrators, but he he sees that it looks terrifying and horrible. And watching the reenactment unfold, he calls cut, and he says, "This is going to make us look bad. This is going to make me look bad. I feel terrible with my image right in the middle of all of this." And he says, "We need to redo this. We need to make it more humane. Of course, we want to exterminate the communists, but it should be done in a more humane way." And so he calls cut. And then, and at that moment, in fact, I thought I was in real trouble. I thought he would call the military, he would call the police, and we would be arrested, and we would be in real... Uh, and, and at that point, my crew was totally overextended. We had hundreds of paramilitary gangsters, and then my crew of five people. I thought we were really in trouble. Yeah. But in that, But luckily, he did some quick thinking, and he realized that as a powerful political gangster, his only capital is fear. He's able to op a gangster's ca- a gangster's capital is fear. If people are not afraid of the gangster, the gangster cannot run protection rackets, cannot blackmail people, cannot extort people. So he realized that actually he has the only reason he has his job is because he's a feared paramilitary leader. And so he changes his mind and it's an extraordinary moment and one that I was so relieved. Yeah. Came, said, No, continue, don't erase this because this should, we'll use this to show how awful we can be. Sure, but he also seemed to come up with a, a calculus, a logic of, of this being a simulation of what's possible, so he could sort of have it both ways. But when he's speaking to you, it's very much like you're in charge, like it's your film, but, and it is, but during the filming it seems really imperative that the killers, the gangsters, are taking ownership of what they are filming. But was it ever their film? It was never their film. I, I met um, the, the main character in the film, Anwar Congo, was the 41st 
perpetrator with whom I filmed. And I started this journey in collaboration with a community of survivors who had said, please film the perpetrators. They will boast for you. They will show you uh, what they did. They will, you'll find out what they did. But in the boasting, in their boasting, in their apparent pride, as though they, the, the survivors already knew that these men couldn't really be proud, in their apparent pride, the audience will see exactly why uh, we're so afraid in the nature of this regime. And I filmed every perpetrator I could find on their behalf. And all of them were open. All of them were boastful. Within minutes of filming them, uh, within minutes of finishing telling me what they did, they would invite me to the places where they killed and offer to show me how they killed. And afterwards, after launching into these kind of spontaneous demonstrations of how they killed, they would then regret that they hadn't thought to bring along friends to play the victims or um, props to use as weapons. And I came to understand that this is when I came to understand that this is like walking into Nazi Germany with the with the with 40 years on with the with the Nazis still in power, and I realized that I needed to understand how a whole society has built this 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 normality on the basis of terror and lies. And so what I started proposing to them long before I met Anwar, the main character was, look, you've participated in one of the biggest killings in human history. Your whole society is based on it. Your lives are shaped by it. You want to show me what you've done. I want to understand what it means to you, what it means to your society, how you want to be seen, and how you see yourself. So show me what you've done in whatever way you wish. I'll film the process. I'll film your reenactments. I'll combine this material to create a new form of documentary that answers these questions. So they always know they're only making scenes for my film. And this method was not a kind of strange lure to get them to open up. It was, on the contrary, a response to their openness, an effort to try and understand the nature of their openness. What are they doing by boasting? And so... And yet they do take ownership. They fall, I think, it, Anwar in particular, the main character for him, reenacting what he's done is some way of trying to work through his pain and maybe run away from it. So they get very involved in the filmmaking process, and that's essential because otherwise the reenactments that they produce wouldn't reveal anything about them. Absolutely, and, and I think that some of the really powerful scenes you have with Anwar, especially talking about his you know, potential for, for, for guilt or interesting. But you talk about boasting. There's one, one of the other set pieces, I think, in the film is a, is, is a semi-reenactment musical number with a song called Born Free. And, and I guess I just want to explain to the audience just how far this boasting goes. In this scene, one of Anwar's victims, an actor portraying him, presents Anwar with a medal thanking him for executing him. And yes. this, this scene is like straight out of a David Lynch movie. Like what, there are waterfalls, dancing girls. It's, it's incredible, to, incredible to watch. Like where did that one come from? Well, just before that scene in the film, and without giving too much of the film away, Anwar plays a victim of his, of his crimes and experiences a very real moment of trauma. And my method was never to film, never really to plan more than one scene at a time, one or two scenes, so that we could shoot a scene Anwar could see the scene, reflect on the scene, watch it, and think about what he wants to do next. And the, I think that Anwar proposed this waterfall scene, this kind of vision of, of the afterlife and vision of his own redemption in the afterlife in response to and as a way of running away from the pain 
that came up in the previous scene where he plays the victim. I think that that in that in that actually there's a very important insight into maybe one of the most important insights in the film about the nature of the killer's boasting. We see them boast, and we assume this is a sign that they feel no remorse, that they feel, you know, that they're utterly inhuman, that they have no conscience. But if you think about it, the boasting can also be a desperate attempt to reassure themselves and to insist to the rest of the world and to the society as a whole that what they did was right. Because if you or I had killed and had got away with it and had been and and had been had been given by the government a justification for it i'm quite sure we would cling to that justification so that we wouldn't have to wake up in the morning look in the mirror and see a mass murderer so these men the boasting which appears to be a sign that they feel other that they have no humanity is in fact i think the opposite and that's a sort of central paradox in the film mm. but i think the tragedy of that paradox is that once you've once you've corrupted yourself by killing one person, got away with it, and then justified it, and even it, because you're insecure in your justification, you stridently start to celebrate it, that becomes, that almost necessitates committing further evil, because now you have to suppress your, you have to suppress the survivors so that they don't challenge your version of the, of the events. You have to, um, you ha- and then that allows you to steal from them, to extort them, steal their land, extort money from them, also as a way that you, um, also in part because you're saying that they deserved what happened to them, and it demands that you kill again, and that's the worst part, because if the government now says, okay, you've killed this person for that reason, now kill this other person for the same reason, well, if you refuse the second time, it's like admitting it was wrong the first time. And that's what everybody's desperately trying to avoid. Yeah, but like, I, I, let's talk about some of these, you know, interpretations of boasting as we move up the food chain. Because Anwar and his main colleague, Herman, um, who are, you know, I would say the main characters in this film, they, they, they made a name for themselves as movie theater gangsters scalping tickets or, uh, back in the day. But they kind of seem like common street thugs. And it seems that many of the people we meet who are higher up on the food chain seem to still, you know... Uh, see them as thugs, but the, again, there's this pride to the word gangster that you know, going up from Anwar and Herman up the food chain. The leader of the paramilitary, uh, Yapto, uh, calls himself the country's biggest gangster. You know, at this rally you film, and and the word, I guess, in Indonesian, literally means free man, free men, free man. To many mm-hmm. of the it comes people. from that. Yeah, and you seem to grapple with this idea throughout the film. This is definitely one of the big issues for you. There, there, and you know there have been men who've been robbing, raping, and killing for no other reason to, because they they wanted to from the beginning of time. But perhaps, and perhaps, gangster is a good modern word for this. But what did these men teach you about gangsterism? Well, as I, as I, I, I think it taught me that there's a risk. There's a danger in having. I mean, I think gangsterism is an inevitable kind of like cancerous formation that forms in any society that's ruled by fear. Gangsters are just people who are feared who do things because they can get away from it, because they can get away with it. And here you have a society where there's a kind of. And I think gangsterism maybe becomes more prominent in societies as they enter in corrupt societies as they make a, an apparent transition 
they, they, they can be part of a veneer of normality. It's a kind of unofficial power structure. So we have the vice president in the film saying, we need our thugs or we need our free men, we need our gangsters to be able to get things done, to be able to beat people up when necessary. That's the vice president of the country. That man's now Yusuf Kala making a bid to be president of Indonesia, the world's fourth largest country, the world's largest Islamic country, in 19... That's right, in, 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 in next year. And he's also the current head of the Indonesian Red Cross. And we have the governor saying the same thing. It's great to have gangsters so long as you know how to use them. Yeah, it, it makes me think of, you know, not, you, you say it's, it's, it's a uh, corrupt society and perhaps a different way of looking at them, but, it, you know, I couldn't help but watching that scene think back to Ronald Reagan saying, you know, government is not the solution, government's the problem. I mean, it seemed to very much resonate with that speech. Yeah, there is that. But there's another thing Ronald Reagan said about the dictator of Guatemala, the right-wing dictator of Guatemala, man, much like Suharto. He said, Rios Mont is my kind of guy. And I might be paraphrasing a little bit, but Suharto was also Ronald Reagan's kind of guy. And I would just, the dictator of Indonesia who was most at the top of the food chain in, in creating the 1965-66 genocide. And I think it's important to recognize that the world we see in the act of killing is not some distant, mm-hmm. far-off reality on the other side of the world where black is white and white is black. It is the underbelly of our reality. And by that I mean that every that the telephone through which we're speaking, every article of clothing that touches my body right now is haunted by the suffering of the people who make it for, for us make these things for us, and all of them are working in factories, always located in places where there's been mass violence, where perpetrators have won, and have built regimes of fear on the basis of their victory, and thereby kept people so afraid that the people who make everything we buy are unable to organize so that the human and environmental cost of everything we buy is incorporated in the price tag that we pay. That is to say, we depend on unwarranted as friends and the reality you see in the act of killing for our everyday living. And I think this damages us because we have only one chance to live on this earth. We have only one life. This damages us just as by the end of the film, we see that the act of killing has destroyed the men who've done it. They either end up ravaged like Anwar or they end up like Adi, a kind of empty shell. Yeah, and you know it's it's very important that you're bringing up the the connections to our present, but it's also you know it, as much as these people are talking about the past, you you take us and show us some shocking gangsterism that's taking place in the you know in the present society, and and it's just amazing that you're you're allowed to do this. But we see uh, some men shanking down some Chinese businessmen at a market. We meet one of the leaders, the paramilitary leaders, who brags that he uses the thugs to get people to sell him land. And this guy just wants to show you his very limited crystal collection of, of crystal animals. So, but it's one thing to say that these crimes are in the past and we're you know, keeping them in the past, boasting about them in the past. But why would they let you tag along on a shakedown? I think that, as I, as I said, um, the gangsterism in Indonesia is not just tolerated, as you see from the vice president, it's been celebrated by leading politicians. So therefore, they have nothing to fear and nothing to hide. Now, it was a very painful shoot to tag along for. I thought, to my, In fact, I said I wasn't going to do it. I wouldn't go because I felt that the market sellers would see that the men who extort them come with their own film crew. That would make them appear more powerful and more frightening in the eyes of the 
of the market sellers, and I said that I wouldn't do it. And my Indonesian crew said, you must film this. This happens every day in every Indonesian market. You have a moral responsibility to do so. So what I did was I would go with uh, I would go with Herman and Safid from stall to stall, and I would tell them, when you're done, just move ahead 50 meters, and I will linger back, and I will get a release form signed. But what I was really doing was I was explaining why we were there, and I was paying everybody back as a sign of good faith. Ah. And that made it actually a very expensive scene to shoot because there were, you know, they filmed, we filmed 20 or 30 of those shakedowns and each person's giving something on the order of $50. Yeah, so yeah. It was an expensive day in the market. I want to ask you about one of the other gangsters we meet. This is a guy named Adi. He flies in midway through the film. Now, I, I, I want to know who this guy is. Where does he come from, by the way? And why does he want to participate in this project, even though he says from the get-go, as soon as he gets off the plane, some things should not be talked about? And as close as you get to Anwar and Herman, I feel that Adi was really the gangster that you know that 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 you most wanted to study. Like, what was it about him that you were? I looking think Adi, uh, Adi, Adi flies in in the middle of the film from Jakarta, where he had been living for many years and continuing his life as a gangster, but he, uh, a preman, as he as they say, he had been the treasurer of Panchasila youth in North Sumatra in the past. He'd had a falling out with the very, very limited crystal gangster, who you also meet in the film, and so had moved to Jakarta. And when he comes in, in fact, he doesn't say something should be hidden right away. He comes in and he says all the things that I feel are true and was waiting, I'd never thought a perpetrator would say. He says, the killings were wrong. We were the bad guys, not uh, not the people we killed. The propaganda justifying the killings is a lie. The government should apologize. There should be truth and reconciliation. All of this stuff. And I said, okay, say this to Anwar. And I was totally prepared for the film to go in a completely different direction from that point. But when he, but somehow it turned, I, I wrongly took this at face value. And I thought he was, as he said, he wanted to be in the film because he wanted to make these points. But he turned out to be the biggest hypocrite of all. He and I think in reality what he was doing was showing off. And he was showing and, and, and when he's hypocritical it's when he says, as you pointed out, uh it's when he says something should remain hidden. That's the kind of pinnacle of his hypocrisy. Ah. But but the moment I suppose the the what he's really doing is he's showing off, look, I'm so tough that I can know all of this is wrong. I can tell you it's wrong and still sleep easily at night. How is that? Maybe that's not hypocrisy, though. I'm, I'm fascinated that you use that word. He, you have this conversation in the car with him where you point out that these are war crimes and they would go against the Geneva Conventions, and he laughs at, and he, he laughs at you and says that not only do the Geneva Conventions mean nothing to him, but they mean nothing to the world. And he says hope, maybe soon they'll be replaced by what he calls the Jakarta Conventions. And, you know, sure, there's some showing off there, but it seems that he's been able to rec- to truly reconcile these things? Like, what if the Jakarta Conventions means that in the future people like him will be able to have both sort of things? Be- like, these, these things well, the we did Geneva are wrong? Conventions, the Geneva Conventions mean that people like him will never be prosecuted. After In that scene, he says, take me to The Hague. I'll become famous. Yes. And then he says afterwards, you know I'll never be taken to The Hague. It's not in the film, this line. He says, you know I'll never be taken to The Hague because the West has no interest in taking me to The Hague. Yeah. So his critique of human rights discourse 
and the and the and the way it's applied selectively by the West is absolutely apt, and that's why it's in the film. Now, when I said he was showing off, I meant he was showing off to the other thugs when he's saying he wants an apology and so forth. And then when he watches a reenactment that's particularly emotional, he gets cold feet and decides that he doesn't want to continue with the film and says the film is going to make us look bad, and I don't want to be involved with it anymore, and you shouldn't either. Now, everybody else ignores him because I think... What Anwar, the main character, is trying to do by being in the film is to somehow deal with, run away from, somehow co- work with his pain. He's not trying to look good. And certainly the younger thugs are not trying to look good either. They are trying to look to, to enhance their fearsome image because that's the basis for their power. But I think, so I think he's doing different things in different scenes. He's showing off at first. Then I think maybe, he, I think it's, hypocrisy is the wrong word. He changes his mind, perhaps, and decides he doesn't want to be a part of it. And then in the car, we argue. And you're right. I mean, he's talking about how, you know, if you're, if you're Rios Mont, if you're Ronald Reagan's kind of guy or Suharto, you're not going to be done for killing half a million people. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, you go, you know, we meet some minister, we meet maybe even the future president of Indonesia in your film, but we don't really... There's there are higher levels of uh, military and even you know uh, you suggest the West uh, being involved in the story. Did you feel that there was just uh, a limit to where you could go in in, in in getting in some of the bigger gangsters in this well, project? I think the film. I mean, I go about as high as you can go in Indonesia with gangsters, and that Yapto is the head of, is, as he says in his speech, one of the biggest gangsters in Indonesia. Um, of course, you could say that the corrupt army generals who have enriched themselves on the basis of terrorizing and killing people, they are, in fact, the biggest gangsters. But the ones who were involved in 1965 in any position of command are very, very old or dead because they were older. They were older than Anwar, who was 25, 26 at the time of the killings because um, they were generals or they were commanders. But also, the army outsourced the killings to paramilitaries and to gangsters for a reason so that they could maintain an image of being a professional army and wash their hands of it. So this film is an interrogation into the nature of impunity, into the boasting of the perpetrators, and the army generals do not boast. Now, interestingly, I I filmed a retired CIA officer and a retired State Department official who were providing death lists of thousands of names to the Indonesian army at the time of the killings, basically to ask those people to... um, basically to insist that those people be killed by the army, the people on the lists. And they were boastful about that, I could say, for lack of a better word. Now, that I didn't include because there's a whole story about what the West's bigger role was, and there was a lot the West was doing to support the killings. And I hope people, after seeing the movie, will be interested enough, moved enough to then research this, look it up online. People can make other films about it. People can write about it. I know Errol Morris has just written a piece about it. Um, I think that it's so, but but the thing is, to go into the details of what the West was doing, when the, when they played a kind of supportive but not determinate role, um, would be it would turn the film into a historical film, mm-hmm. a film about the past. And as you pointed out earlier, this is fundamentally a film about now. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, I want to quickly ask you about you know, probably the scene that, 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 that hit me the most. This was from one of Anwar's neighbors, Suryano, who's participating. And he tells this story about his Chinese stepfather who was killed when he was just a small boy and, his, and how his family was exiled to a camp in the jungle. But when he recalls the night of his stepfather's murder, he's, he's suggesting that maybe it could go in the film. And all of the other killers in the room, Anwar, Adi, Herman, they're, they're like, no, no, no. They're very adamant. This has no place in the film. His story, there's just no room for it. You know, even the, And it seems to resonate with the present situation and that you, you talk about and this something you really want to get across, that it's actually impossible to film the stories of the victims, even if you wanted to. Well, I think there's a couple things to say about that. He says, first of all, I once I started filming with the perpetrators, I then sort of fell apart, especially like people like the governor of North Sumatra. I was beyond suspicion, and I was able to finish shooting my film with the survivors, which I will, which will come out next year. I'm in the middle of editing it now. Um, but I would also say that with Suriono, with the neighbor of Anwar, this is a, if, if I can be clear about this, I would say this is an error in the film, in that it's an error, it's my mistake. It's my error of omission rather than my error of commission. But to be clear, when we were shooting in those sound stages, we would have four or five cameras. And I was shooting in another part of the studio with Adi, along, along with my main collab, my, and, my, and my cinematographer, who didn't speak Indonesian, was filming this story with Suryono. And so I didn't hear the story when he told it. And in fact, we then we filmed and we filmed and we filmed. I came home from that shoot with 560 hours of material just from that one shoot. Oh my. And so I worked through the important scenes, which were the key reenactments, now, and, the, and the scenes with Anwar and Adi. And Suriono had been introduced to me as a very good actor and a member of the paramilitary group who'd been in a paramilitary theater, theater troupe, which had closed down before I started making this film. And so I saw these I saw this reenactment with him where he breaks down playing the victim and thought, oh, he's acting. And I'd, in fact, taken out the close-ups where he looks like he's where he's emotional because I felt here's a scene with so much real in it. There's real perpetrators teaching younger thugs how to kill and torture. It doesn't need melodrama. So, And then after I was done rough-cutting all the key scenes, I went through all the side conversations that I'd perhaps uh, that, that I hadn't filmed or that I'd forgotten to see if there was anything important that I missed. And I came across this story where Suriono tells about his stepfather's death. And I realized, oh my gosh, if I'd heard this, I absolutely would have taken him aside and said to him, you know, you, why are you here? You, in fact, don't, don't tell me. Just spend the rest of the day behind the camera with me. And tomorrow say you're ill. Don't come back. And I didn't do that because I didn't hear it. He acts in that scene. He acts in the, he's in the audience of the talk show cheering along. He's in other scenes, this reenactment of a village massacre. And when I put the film together, I felt very upset that he, uh, about, about what he'd been through making the film. And this was now when I had a rough cut with two and a half years later. There was a thousand hours of footage. It was a huge editing process. I found an old call sheet with his number and I called his, I called it. And his wife answered and said that six months before, actually, he'd passed away from complications of diabetes. I took that in, and I said, did he ever talk about why he was in my movie? What was the reason? And she said, yes, he talked a lot about it. He'd been through this awful experience as a child. His stepfather had been killed. 
um, and he had wanted to show the horror of what he'd been through. And in that scene, he said, if you can't include this in the film, maybe it can motivate the actors. And I think as an actor, he used his past to motivate himself and to give him that emotion. It's real method acting, and he's very upset. And I think he did indeed want to be there, and he wanted to bring that power to the film. He did so. I'm glad that he succeeded in his mission. But if I had could do it all over again and had heard that conversation, I still would have pulled him out. Wow, wow. It's a it's such a powerful moment. But Joshua, I think our time is up, but I, I really want to thank you for si- taking some time to talk to us about the film. The film is called The Act of Killing. It opens up here in New York on the 19th. Um, thanks again for, for joining us, Joshua. Oppenheimer is the director. Thank you so much. You can find a link to the Act of Killings page, uh, including their trailer, on the WFMU Accu playlist. Our next guest, Alex Lambert, uh, has also made documentary films a few years ago. She made one called The Mark of Cain about uh, the tattooed men in Russian prisons. It's definitely one of uh, my favorite films. It's incredible that she not only got access to the modern gulag, but she that she also lived to tell about it. Alex is also a writer and an artist. She had a piece in the 1993 New Museum show that was the big to-do a few months ago. But crime just might be her main project. And uh, the Mocha Museum on their website, Mocha TV, they're releasing a number of animated crime stories that Alex put together with an animator named Sam Chu. And she joins me now on the phone to talk about them. Hey, Alex, welcome to WFMU. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So we're here to talk about your crime uh, animated videos, but it seems that crime is something that, that you've been working on like since you were a baby. Like, you have <laughs> theater projects, you have book projects. What, what, where does this all start for, me, for you? Um, I don't know if a baby, but I, I think certainly young. Uh, I talk about it a little bit in the introduction to the book. Uh, you know, I had a, a babysitter who, who was the victim of a crime, and um, so I think I had an early interest in it, in crime, in a kind of non, in actually exploring it and not trying to just sensationalize it. And then you, you decided at one point to start doing a lot of interviews. Yeah, I mean, which also started young. I was really obsessed with Studs Terkel, and I interviewed actually my babysitter about her job and talked to a lot of people. Um, but then it became more uh, focused on crime when I had been, um, I made a film in the Russian prisons, and so I had interviews that didn't end up in the film and wanted to do something with them and had kind of accumulated material that wasn't out there, and I wanted to, to do something with it. Yeah, and you know, you've done a few things with it. You've done some theater, you've done a book, and now you've done a series of animated videos, which are amazing. I, I love these. How did you decide to do uh, videos out of these? Did someone come to you, or was this like something you thought would be a form that these interviews would work well for? Well, weirdly, it was both. It was something that I had thought about and talked about and then um, not done anything about. And then Sam Cho, who runs Style 5 TV in, in Toronto, which is a... Um, animation studio actually contacted me on video on Vimeo and said, you know, this would be something I'd be interested in, 
in animating. And so we started talking and, um, and, you know, he works with amazing animators and we had similar ideas about what we thought the series could be. And, and we started working on it. So it was very, um, it just kind of fell into place really nicely. Let's hear a few seconds from one of them. This is, uh, uh, one where a guy gets shot at a barbecue on the 4th of July. As soon as I sat on the steps, I was in a puddle of blood. Uh, this dude come out of the first floor apartment where I was sitting in. He comes out and he says, Oh, shit, y'all, I'm sorry. If I knew they was going to do this to you, I wouldn't have called them. And what pissed me off more is that he wasn't streetwise at all. He wasn't in the streets. Damn, man, I'm getting ready to die. And these lame-ass dudes did it. All right, so, so tell me about this story. Okay, so that's my friend Samson Styles. He is a um, he's currently an anchor on on BET Network. He but he used to be a stick up kid, which means you know he used to uh, stick people up, rob them. Yeah, and apparently he, there was some you know like ethics to this this kind of business. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so he he was he was shot on the Fourth of July, and he talks about. Uh, kind of being disappointed in the quality of person who shot him. <laughs> and, um, you know, he's both, I think, funny and also, you know, understand. He, he, he does a lot of work now with, like, dealing, you know, trying to keep prevent people from being in that position. Um, so uh, I really loved that story for a lot of different reasons, and it, and it lent itself to animation. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's very compelling from this, you know, when he gets held up with, you know, two people with guns on him. And the first one, he, there's a moment where you think he's got it under control because he's got the other guy, you know, uh, covered with his gun, and then that turns out to be two. But it's amazing that he was able to survive, you know, in the animation. It, it makes it seem like, you know, it's like Sam Peckinpah style. Well, it was, and he, he, he very closely almost didn't survive. He, I think he was shot five times. He shot in the neck. He has still part of his lung is... Uh, is missing um from that and uh but he did and he and he's doing a lot of great work now so oh, let's, uh, yeah. play, let's play a clip from another one here uh, it's a little harder to understand but we'll, we'll come it, this is a story about a woman you're interviewing talking about her brother that murdered their parents this one's called when i was 28. so age 20 he was 28 and he killed him and stabbed he made a weapon he uh went downstairs and got a pipe and a knife and then walked over to my parents' house, which was probably maybe two miles away, and waited until my dad went out to the court. But that was it. So, so what's the story with this one? So she is, um, she asked for this, that her name be withheld, um, but she is a forensic artist, she, which precedes her, her, the situation in her family where her brother uh, murdered her parents. And um, he was uh, there, there. When he was adopted, she's also adopted. He, he, she said, you know, she was only like two, but she said, like, you don't want this one. <laughs> He's no good. And uh, she kind of could see that he was, that he had some problems. And and he went on to to kill her parents. And she, um, yeah, she talks about that. It's really upsetting and, and scary. And I think, and for me, like, I I just love the actual artwork in that one. I think it's so beautiful. Oh, yeah. But, you know, you have to use the subtitles uh, in this one just because I think this was a phone interview. You know, it really wasn't... No, it was actually in person, but it was just not with the anticipation yeah. that I would be doing this. And yeah. um, 
and so the quality of the audio is not is not good, and uh, so we subtitled that one. But being a multimedia person that you work in so many things, didn't you have a sense when you were doing these that maybe one day they, they would, you would end up in a situation that you wish they were recorded like really well? I, or? Yeah, I mean, I did have a sense, but sometimes you grab an interview when you grab an interview. Yep. And when I actually was, she works at a, at a forensic facility in Tennessee, and I was actually there to interview somebody else. And that interview um, is in the book, Bill Bass, and I... Um, and that one, the quality of the audio is much better. But, uh, you know, he was like, oh, you should talk to this person. And um, so it was very unexpected. And uh, there were a lot of other people in the room. And there was just no kind of control of the audio situation. Yeah. But, you know, it really doesn't matter. As you said, the artwork in this one is so compelling. And I have to say that in short animated videos, subtitles don't really, I mean, they don't bother me. I mean, for me, I mean, my hope is that, you know, because it's like the original audio, there is a sense for those two episodes that that you get, like, okay, I'm hearing audio that was, you know, yeah. uh, not, you know, it doesn't feel, it's not like if you went to a movie and you're like, why is the audio not perfect? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, since you have so many interviews, there's, what, six in this uh, animated series. What, what were sort of the criteria you were looking for to, to, to present these, this crime project? You know, you won't, so you could only make six. What was the criteria that you had to sort of filter I mean, the out? hope is it will continue. So these are hopefully the first six. But um, to choose those first six, I really wanted to uh, have a variety of, so you're not, listening only to criminals or only to, you know, and, and so like, uh, Joe Brissetta in, in, in Hartford is somebody who, uh, is an observer, you know, he, he runs a tattoo parlor that's in a bad part of Hartford. And, and so he's seen a lot over 30 years. And then I wanted somebody who, um, had, you know, experienced crime as like a, from, well, she wasn't the victim, but she certainly was in a situation where it was, I didn't want it to be all like, hey, criminals are cool or criminals are this or, or you know, I wanted it to be a little bit more well-rounded in terms of who yeah, you're yeah. listening to. And also just the, the book, you know, the, the scope of the project, you have such a variety. But there's the comedic one, the, the guy who gets his car <laughs> stolen. I have to put some beeps in this one to play a minute, but let's just, <laughs> this is the guy who gets his car stolen and he's finally talking to the cops. I said, yeah, you know what I'm going to do next time? I'm going to say it's a white woman down here. I'm going to say it's a white woman down here. She got a Trinity College t-shirt on. I said, oh, I bet you'll come this time. He said, you know what? That wouldn't be right. No, I filed this report uh, two weeks ago. I told you my car had been going for a week and a half. And y'all don't respond. They never, never showed up. This is a little city, man. I love that story, and for me, that was like one of the first ones I wanted to animate just because the other challenge that's different from the book or from a play, he's in my play, and he's in the um, Hartford play, but uh, is that you only have like three minutes, and so you really want something that can be a whole story in that short time, and for me, that story is, I mean, it's serious because it, it sucks that, the, that he had no assistance from the police, but it's also hilarious, and he's so sorry to use the word, but animated in the way that he tells the story, and I could just listen to him tell that story again and again. Yeah. You know, and by I, then, you can hear that I'm, I'm being more careful with the audio recording. Yeah, yeah. So let's let, talk about the animation. So Sam runs a studio, because there's a variety of styles that, that 
there's some some consistency here, but it really like each story kind of has its own feel to it. Yeah, we wanted really different. We 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 wanted the consistency to be in the color palette. Like you have black, white, and red in all of the the episodes, but you also have a number of different animators and different animation styles that you know hopefully match the content of the piece. So. You got this picked up by uh, Mocha TV. Who who are they? Um, the Mocha Museum uh, in Los Angeles has a TV channel um, on YouTube, and it's Mocha TV, and they've been phenomenal. I can't say enough good things about them. And they're, you know, I think not just not just working with them, but the other programming that you know you can subscribe to them and and watch what they um, put out there. And it's been it's a lot of great like artists doing interesting things and I like I'm watching it so I'm really excited to be working with them. So okay. these videos will all be on the Mocha TV YouTube page. When do they go live? Um, they so we have a launch at the museum on Wednesday night where there'll be a screening and then uh, Friday they the first one will go up and then one will go up every day for six days and then they'll all be live. So right now the trailer is up and then you can start seeing them next week one a day and then once they're all six up then you can see all six of them. Awesome and we have a link up to the trailer. So thanks a lot for for telling us about these, Alex. Thank you. So you can find links to both Alex crime trailers and the act of killing trailers on the WFMU Accu playlist for PMI today. I hope you are enjoying the interview show. I am getting a bunch of emails asking me where all the old TMI stuff went. Uh, one guy referred to it as, you know, the good stuff. But uh, thank you. Uh, uh, well. I can tell you I moved it to a separate podcast that I'm doing called The Theory of Everything, and you can find that at toe.prx.org. And that's where Peter, Chris, and all of the regulars are now housed. But since I am short today, I'm going to play you something I recently recorded with Chris. Okay, what do I need to know here? Well... I have a new podcast, and I'm calling it Benjamin Walker's Theory of Everything. Okay. And when it comes to us, I'm hoping that we can just keep doing what we've always done. I call you up every now and then, and you tell me what you're doing. That sound okay? Yeah, that works for me. Great. So it's been a while. Uh, what are you up to? I have been consulting for a web filtering company. Oh, my God, I knew it. You're working on Prism. No, no, the company I've been working with just does porn filtering. Oh, that's better. You're, you're just helping the Chinese government censor democracy. Dude, I'm going to pull up the China logs for one of our products. Let's see. Okay, top five search terms. In China, boobs, bad girls, doggy style, Szechuan lollipop, top party member orgy. Okay, you got to go down to like number... 100,000 before you see Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International. I'm not even doing international though. The client I'm working with right now is the IRS. Wait, you're installing this on government computers? I don't think this will really come as a shock to you, but porn filtering software is 
pretty much installed in every government agency. Because the workers just can't can't help themselves. Oh yeah, it's it, the list is long. I mean, the IRS is like the sixth agency that I've done. I mean, started at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, um, went to the National Institute of Standards and Technology, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the Parks Department, the U.S. Forest Service. <laughs> hey, you laugh, but I'm telling you. This stuff has been installed in pretty much every agency. I mean, all the all the way to Guantanamo. Really? Yeah. In fact, I'm working with one of the guys who did the install at Joint Task Force Guantanamo. But I, I'm a little confused. I mean, with all of these high-profile hackings in the news, why would the government be focused on installing porn filtering software rather than say i don't know security software all of these supposed hackings that's really just desperate people searching for porn oh come on the new york times got hacked by chinese hackers they were not looking for porn okay the new york times servers were broken into but what you don't know is that this only happened because someone was looking for porn. Alright, now now you're losing me. You're gonna have you're gonna have to spell this one out for me. Okay, so you remember the guy I was telling you about? Uh guy, the guy that did the Guantanamo install. Okay. The other night after work, we went and had a few beers, and this guy told me the real story about the New York Times hack. It was not the Chinese. Who was it? Ali Muhammad Balu. Who? Ali Muhammad Balu is a prisoner in solitary confinement at Guantanamo. Um, okay, maybe I'm stupid, but it, it seems to me that it would be, you know, kind of difficult to do some hacking while you're in solitary confinement at Guantanamo. Well, according to my friend... He did it with a Nubia. Uh, I don't know what a Nubia is. A Nubia is a Chinese-made smartphone. Um, but how does this guy get his hands on a Nubia? So Ali Muhammad Balu is in solitary. Uh, the only people he sees are the guards. And there's one guard who works the night shift. And he's been working the night shift for about four months. And this guard is totally pissed off when they installed all the porn blocking software because, you know, this is what he would do at night to pass the time. And he complains about this to Ali Muhammad Balu. So Muhammad Balu says, I'm really good with computers. So if you can get me a computer, I think I can get around the filters. Now, you know, it's Guantanamo, right? The guard knows he can't bring a laptop in there. So the guard goes and buys this Nubia because it's a powerful smartphone and it has a big screen. And he slips it to Muhammad Bullet. And does he get past the filtering firewall? Oh, yeah. He cleared that in like 10 minutes. But the guard thought, you know, like doing this pack would take all night. So he's got this cell phone, this, this smartphone, 
Nubia all night. So where, where does he go? What does he do? He goes to the New York Times website. Why would he go there? Like he has like finally can go anywhere. Why would he go there? He wanted to see what the paper was writing about Guantanamo. Now all this happened before the hunger strikes and before Obama mentioned it in that press conference. So Muhammad can't find anything, nothing. So he figures, well, maybe there's something in the archives. So he tries to go to the archives, but he quickly hits the 10 article limit. He hits the paywall. <laughs> yes, but he's not gonna sign up for an account. He doesn't have a credit card. So he hacks into the site. Yes. And once he got into the system, he realized he had access to all the staff email accounts. He went looking for someone who might be writing about all the people like him who've been cleared for release, cleared of any suspicion of wrongdoing, but were still stuck in Guantanamo. And this is why the people at the New York Times thought that the hack came from China. But I, I don't understand. Why didn't he write someone? It took Mohammed Balu like four hours to find someone who he thought might be interested in Guantanamo. And according to my friend who checked out the browsing history, the phone died just as Balu was opening a Yahoo account. It's a Chinese cell phone. Of course the battery sucks. That's it for the show today. Uh, thanks to my guests, Joshua Oppenheimer and Alex Lambert, and to uh, Andrea Salenzi uh, for helping out every week as she does. Uh, you can find archives of the program at WFMU.org. You're listening to WMFU East... Blah. <laughs> Sorry, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WNYX Montgomery, online at WFMU.org, and in Rockland County at 91.9 FM. Here is Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. I did something that was really interesting and a lot of fun. I got a divorce. <laughs> and the reason it was such fun was because I did it all myself without the help of a lawyer. I drew up the documents and typed them and I took them into the court registry and filed them. And when the trial date came around, I went into court myself and talked to the judge. 
and he granted the divorce in about five minutes. And instead of it costing me somewhere between $300 and $600, it would have cost me $36, but I managed to cut a couple of corners, and it actually cost me $33.50. And on top of that, I got a song out of it. Do-it-yourself is all the rage. This is the hobby merchant's age. Learn how to crochet or sew or knit. Brew your own beer with a special kit. Make other purses. Try painting or weaving or building bookshelves in the wall. Or if you want something a bit more exciting, here is the best of them all. The do-it-yourself divorce. You have to be married, of course. You study petitions, then draw up your own. You don't need a lawyer, you do it alone. You handle the case in court. It's really an elegant sport. $36 is all that it costs, but do it yourself, divorce. Now, I'd like you to try singing that. And I'd also like you to clap. The do it yourself, divorce. There are five places where that fits in quite naturally, so let's give it a whirl. The do-it-yourself divorce You have to be married, of course You study petitions and draw up your own You don't need a lawyer, you do it alone You handle the case in court It's really an elegant sport And $36 is all that it costs A do-it-yourself divorce Right Not long ago there had to be Evidence of Waiting a moment to break inside Judges were always alert for collusion And lawyers charged monstrous fees But now that the state has withdrawn from our bedrooms Which is a quotation from a speech by Pierre Trudeau You can be free as the breeze The do-it-yourself divorce You have to be married, of course You study petitions and draw up your own You don't need a lawyer, you do it alone You handle the case in court it's really an elegant sport And $36 is all that it costs to do it yourself, divorce You will enjoy your day in court Telling the judge you need support Giving details of your erring spouse Making it clear why he's such a louse Then when it's over, there's three months of waiting Before you can get your decree The waiting time gives you a chance to just who the next one will be Do it yourself, divorce You have to be married, of course You study petitions and draw up your own You don't need a lawyer, you do it alone You handle the case in court It's really an elegant sport And $36 is all that it costs And do it yourself, divorce Listening to WFMU, and it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard right there, Vera Johnson with the Do It Yourself. 
divorce, recorded live at the Black Horse Folk Club, Amberley, Sussex, United Kingdom, Monday, October 7th, 1974. And Vera Johnson actually was from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Today on the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show, an interview with, from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, Purity Ring. And to get you ready for Purity Ring, going to play something by one of their favorite bands, The Famines, who are also from Edmonton, Alberta. So here's The Famines, and in an interview with Purity Ring on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show on WFMU. (laughs) 